You are listening to Sustainable Design Podcast with Anastasia Bachikara. Hello, everyone. This is a second part of the interview with Sebastian Egerton Reed. He is a learning program lead at the Elaine MacArthur Foundation, leading the shift towards circular economy. Previous episode four is an overview of circular economy. This episode, we take a closer look at circular design, material choice and use, product as service, dematerialization, modularity, life extension, take back, application on developing countries, as well as tools and resources for you to shift towards circularity. We'll give selected circular design examples to inspire innovative designers and users. However, none of the methods are a silver bullet, as Seb has said. Each product and service must be designed as a closed-loop system in order to be circular. As always, links to all mentioned companies and resources will be available at the episodes page. Let's jump right into it. Most of the time when people talk about both sustainability or circularity, the conversation goes right away into material use. So I want to begin with that, even though it's not the only method that has to be applied and looked at. But um, would you walk us through what is circular material usage? Very often it's not the material that is circular or not circular. It's the product that it's designed into or the system that it's designed into. Um, So, for example, um, one of the things that we often get or one of the very common things I end up having conversations with people about because plastics is a very big topic is uh, oh what you know for plastic bottles why don't we just go back to glass why don't we go back to old glass refillable systems because glass is more reusable and and glass is also maybe even easier to recycle and the kind of point about that is that glass in itself is not like a circular material as a choice versus plastic it's really about the system that's around it so for example glass in the windows of a building isn't really circular because what happens to most buildings when they get demolished is it just all gets demolished and then um, it's the rubble is then repurposed to a much lower value um, or much lower value use than the original different component materials that were put into the building. So, so that's my first kind of thought on material. There, there, is, there are some interesting things to talk about in the space of, of kind of materials, um, material choices, material selection. But actually, the biggest focus within within circular within a circular design, I think, is mapping the journey of your material through uh, material selection through your product and system to understand better how well what's the what's the journey of that material? How is it? How are you going to make sure you get keep it as highest value use for as long as possible? And then how are you going to ensure that, or how how might you ensure that it's then re recaptured or returned into a similar quality material again? It seems to me that plastic became, in a way, more an enemy of the industry. There is a lot of talk about rejecting plastic at all. But learning about circular economy, it seems to me that it has a great quality of incredible flexibility of its form and function and its convenience. And it seems to me that plastic is can be very well used and serve a lot of 
our needs as as long as we figure out the proper system for it to circulate is that right i i think that's really really well said yeah and, and that's and that's kind of exactly the point i was making in the sense that there are definitely some functions in which plastic is used where it's questionable whether it's the right material so you know there's some really interesting things with seaweed for example to replace the use of plastics in little sachets and pouches because it seems that like that might be an area where you're never going to really it's going to be very hard to capture a technical material back when it's that small format and that lightweight and it's ever going to be economically viable even to recycle it so in those instances perhaps it's really valuable to have a sort of bio seaweed type replacement and there's a couple of you know there are a couple of interesting examples of that that will biodegrade or even be edible um, with the product it holds. But there are lots of cases where plastics is a really interesting format. Um, you know, we, we look at formats such as bottles, uh, going back to my glass bottles example. Um, a lot of re reusable functions that replace a plastic bottle are still made of plastic. They're just designed to be far more durable. And it's actually about how does the system get designed around that bottle to make sure it gets reused many, many times. Um, an example would be in the sort of cleaning products industry. Um, there's an example called Replenish where they've they looked at how actually we have these plastic bottles with our cleaning products we buy every week, but they're 90% water. So, and, and then obviously the bottle itself is a one use, not easy to recycle because of all the um, liquids that get attached on the inside and the scale and, and everything. So what if that bottle actually was was made of a much more durable, more you know, actually more material into the plastic bottle, and actually we just sold the um, the concentrate, and then you added the water yourself at home. So the concentrate, rather than you carrying or driving back and forth to the supermarket with these heavy bottles, you get the concentrate that you either pick up in the supermarket or you can be put through your letterbox in some models um, and then you add your water to it and you can then reuse that bottle 20 or 30 times versus a single use bottle it's still using plastic it's still making use of that same material but just in a much better way i want to talk to you about biodegradable materials because there is a lot of question and debate around that today there is a lot of biodegrading materials labels that actually require very special facilities for that to happen. How does foundation see biodegradation of products and materials and how to regulate that, how to clarify what is biodegradable and how we should do it correctly? Yeah, I think you're right to say that there's a lot of confusion about what these different labels mean because there's biodegradable, there's biosourced, there's compostable, and they all have multiple meanings. Um, and I guess one of the biggest challenges around biodegradable is is that um, you know like that can be interpreted quite quickly as biodegradable in a sense that if you just chuck it down on the ground, it will biodegrade, which very often is obviously not the case. It's, there's often actually a specific set of conditions in which those products will biodegrade effectively. Firstly, it's to say that um, you know, biodegrade is not some sort of sil silver bullet. That if everything is biodegradable, it's solved. And there are, of course, a huge number of design and industrial challenges to making everything biodegradable um and we we look at it much more on a or the way in which we work with our partners on it is in much more of a kind of what is the actual appropriate use within this system and within this product a bit like i was talking about with with plastics and the sachets um previously 
but also our approach in the context of, for example, we have something called the New Plastics Economy Global Commitment, which is a set of commitments that companies and all other organizations from all around the world sign up to around plastics to kind of lead the industry in a direction. Um, we have about 20% of the plastic packaging market signed up to this. And one of the commitments in there is that um, 100% of your plastic packaging should be reusable, recyclable, compostable by 2025. In that commitment, we actually define really specifically what we mean by those terms. And obviously, it, you know, it gets quite technical and detailed and perhaps boring for some people. But in terms of clarifying what we really mean for the industry and, uh, and in terms of, you know, the sort of collection sorting um, different systems for composting, that's, you know, that's really our approach is to try and create a shared standard when we talk about something like compostable as we do in that commitment. And another popular and quite exciting method of circularity is product as service, where the ownership of the materials and the physical part of a product remains with the company and the user only receives their function that the product meant to do. For example, the printing, the washing of a laundry or the lighting example you gave from Philips earlier. What would you say other good examples, uh, maybe in some other industries, how that can apply? About three or four years ago, I think a couple of Dutch designers who are also really big music lovers kind of noticed how they were throwing away a lot of headphones. And, uh, and they did some research on it and they actually found out that 15 million kilograms of headphones are thrown away every single year, which is a huge, is a huge amount. And so they kind of, they, they looked at it and they said, well, what, uh, how can we actually do this differently? And they have come up with a model where you don't buy headphones. You never own the headphones. You just buy the service of headphones off of them as a company. They're called Gerard Street. And what that means is that every single part of your headphone, they've designed them to be fully modular, and every single part is kind of interchangeable. Um, so whether you want to get upgrades or a part fails and you want it repaired, um, you just pay them a monthly subscription fee and different parts can be sent back or sent to you depending on 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 your needs um so kind of you have the use of sound in your ears without ever owning a set of headphones another kind of classic example from some of our research is washing machines and we looked at kind of wash cycles and the cost of owning a washing machine which is an asset most of us kind of have in our houses and basically our research kind of showed that you could get access to a much higher quality washing machine that would last much longer and and you would pay less um, by just paying for the use of that over the course of its lifetime. Um, and actually, it would also work out more economically as, as an advantage to the company if they retained those higher quality washing machines and kept them, maintained them, repaired them, and then got all the parts at the end of their lifespan, as opposed to selling lots of cheap washing machines or, or less high quality washing machines that usually ended up in landfill at the end of their lives um, in a state of disrepair. There's actually there is a company called Bundles that um, that operates that they call it a paper wash model. Um, if anyone wants to see an example of that in action, and I often see fashion industry go into this specific method as a solution in a way. What is your opinion? How much can product or service method solve their issue of um, fashion industry pollution? Quite a popular example in China called Y Closet, 
um, where you get access, you pay to access to a wardrobe rather than owning all of the clothes. It's, it's more uh, to wide closets and at scale um, example. There's also, I think, Rent the Runway, which is a more higher luxury brand example. In the US operates a similar model. The idea is you pay a, a fee and rather than you having all the, you know, having to buy and own clothes and them sitting in your wardrobe, you kind of have access to a shared wardrobe or a set of, a, you know, set of clothing options. And it allows you to kind of have that feel of fashion, which is very appealing to many people of, you know, having the latest clothing or having lots of options and different outfits for different seasons, for example, without having to kind of own the clothes and obviously the, the lack of use that goes into that and the eventual, you know, that many of us probably have clothes in the bottom of our drawers and wardrobes that we haven't um, used for a long time. So that's that's a an emergent solution in that industry for sure. And and why closet in China is one really interesting example. But do you think that as a method can solve their um, huge issue of pollution and waste that fashion industry creates? Uh, do you think it's effective or it's only part of the solution and other things must be looked at as well? I think it's all of these things I'm describing are kind of directions slash parts of the solution rather than being the solution. And it's kind of because of, I guess, what we've already said a few times in the course of this interview, which is, that the circular economy response to a challenge in the system and therefore it's very hard to find a single example that captures you know all of the every aspect of the problem um so that that kind of talks about the clothing utilization part of the challenge right and it's also an emergent kind of um solution within the wider customer market and it's going to be seen how the pickup of that is um you know ultimately circular economy solutions need to be attractive propositions to customers they need to be better than what went before in order to drive that take up and and with that particular problem but and then obviously of course across the fashion industry there's still the question of well what what inputs are going into the industry and there's still the question of what's happening after clothing has reached its you know has has finished its its use phases there's still the question of the design of the quality of the clothes in terms of leakage off the clothing in the washing machine for example and the, the challenge of microplastics so yeah I, uh, you know like you're definitely right to say that that's that's looking at one aspect of the problem although it's a really interesting aspect from a business model standpoint and i think another method that's kind of going away in a totally opposite direction from the material itself is dematerialization. Um, famous example and simple one being how CDs and newspapers um, transfer from being a physical product and object into digital applications on our smartphones that serve the function of delivering news and music instead of the physical product. Um, but what are the other good examples um and maybe something important aspects of this method you would want to highlight you know there's still i'm aware there's still a whole host of data centers that power these websites and as we kind of talked a bit about earlier with with google there's still like a kind of circular economy question about the way in which those organizations function um but it is but it can be a but it can be a powerful tool where where necessary, necessary to kind of eliminate material flows. And there are some really, well, there's some really massive market disruptors that have already happened. Obviously, Netflix replacing Blockbuster is another one. And, 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 there, are, and there are several others and they're becoming perhaps even more increasingly prevalent. That doesn't mean that they're kind of circular economy 
um, solutions per se, but they're an interesting lever to use within the context of thinking about the circular economy for some industries. And, and although no, like I, I don't have a another great example of one that's could be disrupted in the future or is being disrupted right now, it wouldn't be surprising if some of the things that we assume require materials are somehow delivered digitally in the future because that just feels like the way the world's going and there is also application of this method of eliminating or reducing materials applied to packaging Um, one interesting being innovation around making food packaging editable edible Uh, for example company ojo who made um, the water bubbles in edible seaweed membrane so i'm really excited about this type of innovation they obviously very peculiar and and have um some promising and exciting opportunities and potential in terms of edible food packaging doesn't it require additional packaging to protect it from moisture or uh, physical impact and germs uh, since it has to do with food well um so yeah, I mean, the Uhu is one of the, I was talking a bit about seaweed packaging in relation to plastics earlier, and Uhu is, it was one of the examples I also had in mind. Um, these are all kind of, these are all kind of interesting systems challenges because, I mean, Uhu is a great example of they've optimized it for some specific uses already. I mean, they look at seaweed packaging in a number of different areas but you know you were talking a bit about the edible membranes and that's especially interesting as a format at marathons and that's where they've kind of had some initial success they partnered with um gatorade recently to be at the london marathon and a few other events what happens at most marathons is they have water stations for the runners but they have to pick up the bottle take a swig but they're not going to drink a whole bottle of water while they're running 29 miles in one go so they just toss the bottles to one side well actually uhu is a format that gives them that kind of hydration without all of the waste um and of course that you know when you think about how that might work at scale it it uh you know there are challenges i've seen uhu trans you know, transported across various places and uh, they obviously have a method of doing it that keeps it fresh um but it's you know it's a challenge of the industry they're trying to replace a format that was extremely successful and it brings in there's all sorts of questions like uh you know that kind of packaging how locally does it need to be produced how local do our food systems become and how much shorter do our supply chains become i mean supply chains is a very interesting topic to be talking about right now because of the context and the fragility of that maybe has been exposed in some of our supply chains by the the current pandemic and crisis Um, so i think it's it's not so much about asking the question how does this new solution do exactly what was being done before? It's about asking how does this solution kind of fit a system and fulfill a need effectively? One of the methods that I want to bring up as well, modularity, is something we touched upon with um, headphones that are can be taken apart. And I think that can be a method that um, helps to solve challenge with uh, e-waste, so devices. Specifically, but also fashion industry, for example, I find really fascinating Stella McCartney development of loop sneaker, where they eliminate contamination of products with adhesive like glue, and they replace glue with clippers so that the product can then can be taken apart to repair or recycle. 
Um, but what do you think is the future of modularity or current situation? Um, is it mainly applied to electronic products or what are the other industries that can benefit from this method? There's loads of different industries where that's interesting. I think buildings is, is, a, is a place where um, being able to modularly change the na- nature of a building within a building um, to allow it to be used for many different things in, as different lifespans or within one lifespan um, can really radically up up the utilization of our buildings. I mean, even the average office space during working hours is not in use about 50% of the time in Europe, at least. Um, so it's huge underutilization of what is a really valuable asset. Um, there's another great example. You mentioned adhesives already. There's a company in Europe called DSM Niagara that um, has developed an ad- adhesive that kind of operates the same way as a screw that you can apply a little bit of heat to it and it will separate things. So um, carpets, they've, they've applied it to the notion of carpets. Apparently car- the average carpet, this is a real shock to me, contains something like over 100 different materials, mo- many of them you know, different kinds of chemicals. It's kind of like a toxic cocktail. And um, DSM Niagara, there are there is a need in many carpets to kind of have a couple of different elements. You know, you have the kind of bit you see, the, the sort of fluffy, comfortable element on your feet. But then you also have this kind of base layer underneath, which is usually a different material. And they've applied their solution to kind of make those two parts completely modular because they're necessarily made from two materials. So they apply this adhesive that's, uh, that glues like a screw. Um, and at the end of the lifespan of that carpet, they can get those two different materials apart and um and put them through their respective loops because one of them's a fiber-based material and the other one is made of something else um so i think modularity as an idea is really applicable across a very broad range of industries when you think about it as how do we make sure that we're not tying things together that then can't be separated or can't be kept at high value together for a long period of time or repurposed at high value for a long period of time and one more method I want to talk about today is um, life extension. Or for myself, I think about about going beyond just thinking of recycling, and that being reuse, repair, refurbishment, or remanufacturing. What other good examples are in use already that serve this life extension model? There's a company called um, Royal Arand that. Um, really works quite hard on this topic i guess from a furniture perspective this kind of feeds in a little bit into like furniture is one of those big aspects that sits within buildings for example but um but actually you know the i think something like 89 80 to 90% of mid, the valuable resources and materials that go into office furniture are lost after a very short use period and aaron's actually solution is quite simple they they mo- they manufacture the office furniture so that it's modular, so you, it's easy to disassemble. It's easy to get the different parts of the the desk back or the different pieces of furniture back. Um, the furniture is designed from the start so that it's easy to repair. It can be upgraded. It can be modified, and they don't really sell it either as a as a you know you don't buy the furniture off them. You just pay it. They prefer to sell it on a furniture as a service model. So combining a few of the things we've already talked about, I guess. So you pay a monthly fee um, and uh, and, it's, and it has resulted in a huge reduction in material usage, a huge reduction in um, carbon emissions. And obviously, actually, also, it's a nice one because it generates more value for that business 
and it creates a you know an even stronger relationship between them and their customers um as well as you know creating a less of a cycle of office furniture actually because you just have a relationship with with the manufacturer who keeps extends the life of each part of that furniture for as long as it's valuable and useful and then can take materials back again to back again at the end of life to repurpose into new furniture all these methods that we have discussed so far are hugely reliant on a take back or how do you um, collect the product or materials back from the user to a company that's seemingly missing today um, in the world that creates this huge problem beside all the steps of production. This link is something very new that um, most companies need to establish to eliminate problem of waste. Besides store credit being very known, for example, with fashion industry, uh, uh, the way Patagonia and many other uh, fashion companies offer you a store credit if you ship back your used items. What are the other effective ways and maybe for other industries that um, help to take back and harvest the materials or used product? You're right to say that all of these all the, pretty much all the examples I've talked about, um, certainly in this in this section of the podcast, have uh, have required the company to have access to, or the organisation to have access to, the product that they make. Um, and I think there's kind of, I don't know, I, I, there's probably more innovation to be done in this area. But for me, there are three big buckets um, which you see. One that you already mentioned, which is kind of actually understand the value. If you've designed the product to be valuable in the first place, it has value to you when it's at the end of its life and you'd be willing to buy it back off the customer. You mentioned um, Patagonia. There's an island-based fashion label called T-Mill that does the exact same thing. They give you five pounds, basically, when you're done with it. The second way is that you never fully sell it to them in the first place. And we've talked about a number of these kind of product as a service or reuse or the, the models that where actually you, you, don't own, you don't own the thing in the first place. Um, so the, the company's relationship with you is fundamentally different and therefore it's easy to get the thing back at when, when, it's, uh, when it's done with by that user. Really switching from thinking about people as consumers to users because we actually don't consume very much we consume food but most of the things that we have like i don't consume my clothes i don't consume my electronics goods i use them um and then the third the really the third way is is designing things so that they really fit the system and they can be collected at a much larger scale whether that's designing something so it's genuinely 100 recyclable and can go into a recycling bin and definitely be recycled back into a um to a high quality product again which is you know looking at the whole system design or designing things that are you know going to be useful either to other organizations when you're done with them there's a there's a part called Kallenburg, um, uh, which does industrial symbiosis where the waste of different businesses becomes the inputs for others in the same industrial park and it's designed very explicitly that way or indeed that you've designed design products that can be returned in some way safely to um to the biosphere I also have a few questions from economic side of things to make all of that happen. There is also a huge uh, contrast between developing countries. We see Europe taking on circular economy very quickly and um, being optimistic, and there is a lot of development and agreement on that. Some other countries, like where I am, 
uh, taking it a bit slow and hope we catch up. But also there are developing countries. How do uh, you see development of circularity in those places? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think it's one that we are always exploring. It's worth saying we, we have offices in Brazil um, and we, we have some work streams that focus on Latin America in the context of circular economy in Latin America. And we also have an office in China um, and we have um, quite a long detailed research paper on the circular economy opportunity in China. Uh, we've also we just begun to start exploring some context um, in Africa, especially related to the work we have on food. And I guess there's maybe there's two comments I can make on 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 that question. One is that um, the circular economy plays out fundamentally differently in each region, even between Europe and North America. There are there are some different dynamics at play, and therefore it starts to manifest itself slightly differently. Um, and then especially when you look at um, Europe and America versus countries in Africa, for example. Um, and the second comment is that um, there is, in some cases, kind of an interesting opportunity that's a little bit unexplored still for companies, to, uh, for countries to, or, or regions or continents to kind of skip some of the mistakes or challenges that other countries like the European countries and North American countries have made and actually leapfrog directly to a circular economy, kind of develop into a circular economy by harnessing things that are intuitively circular about their current practices. But often, you know, in, in impoverished countries, there are lots of things that are very circular, but it's a circular economy of kind of necessity. It's a circular economy based on the fact that there's poverty and actually um, there's not much choice but to reuse things, but there are some interesting kind of traditional practices that you know harnessed with with uh, with digital te technology, with sustainable development, um, and the circular economy could see them kind of leapfrog a step in the kind of linear to circular journey that many other countries have gone in, and actually means they may have some you know a bit like um, the way in which many countries skipped the kind of landline telephone step and went straight to mobiles. It saves kind of infrastructure costs, and it's kind of it was kind of an opportunity as well as, um, you know, as well as a kind of development challenge. Um, that isn't that isn't hugely explored, although it comes out a little bit in some of our work we've done on in Brazil and some of our work that's done in China. We also have a paper published um, on the opportunity in India. Um, but all of these places have a kind of slightly different dynamic to them and should be treated. Whilst they all can apply those that broad set of principles, design out waste and pollution, keep products and materials in use, regenerate natural systems, the way in which those three principles are applied will look very different in many different parts of the world. I also think that in today's world of global trade, um, it's kind of like domino effect. For example, Europe becoming more circular will then trigger countries that they work with or produce with or recycle with to um, naturally uh, start shifting their policy and methods to also more circular ones or countries creating the policy, for example, of importing or exporting uh, more circular products or services over time that will trigger partnering countries also put effort in that. So I do encourage people from all over the world in different countries uh, not to see it as only privilege of some countries is really open to everyone and everyone today have equal opportunities of 
coming up with the best circular idea because it's still in this growing developing mode that's kind of already happened to some extent in in that um when the european union and china signed their most recent agreement circular economy was an item within that trade agreement um it was a principle embedded within the relationship between two of the world's largest economies um because in part it's such a big topic on the agenda of the European Commission right now, and also a topic that's still on the agenda within China as well. For countries that don't have the infrastructure in place or policy in place from a government being supportive or open to such developments, or there is or places where there is no infrastructure, for example, for recycling or refurbishing, how to begin shift to circularity when the infrastructure and governmental support are not in place yet? you know like that it's really context specific but um maybe there's there's a couple of things i can say about that that i mean i think innovation is interesting in any context and actually some of the greatest examples of kind of frugal innovation come from contexts where there isn't a lot of infrastructure there's not a lot of policy support um there's a huge amount of innovation in both design and also in terms of waste utilization for example in places like india where almost an informal economy replaces um replaces infrastructure and there's kind of like an open question it happens to some extent already but there's an open com- conversation to be had about how much it's actually in in context like that how much is it actually about formalizing infrastructure versus harnessing the informal infrastructure that kind of has already cropped up and exist or providing the right kind of information and intelligence into that infrastructure to enable it to um, garner more value for the people within it and um you know in the example of waste pickers and the material flows for example um utilize that material as highest value for long as possible um yeah it's a challenge in many countries i mean um i re- at the end of last year i was in the united states and obviously in many cities in the u.s it depends on the city and the state infrastructure around things like recycling is not as is not as progressed as as other places in the world like europe for example and for many cities and organizations that's kind of like a starting point and and i kind of you know like we we talk about we haven't really talked a lot about recycling in this um in this interview for because it's not a real focus of the circle economy we talk about it being the kind of the loop of last resort but it's also many people kind of start at that point don't they they start at the point of well how do we how do we recycle this and or how do we ensure that this stuff doesn't go to waste and and the first point is recycling and the more you product that problem that's when you start to move kind of beyond beyond recycling and look at some of the more high value opportunities that we've discussed um but it's okay still to be that kind of starting point what can we do with this waste i guess as we are coming to a closing of our interview i want to ask you how can an individual in some professional position working already for example influence acceleration of circularity beyond just educating themselves beyond just making a better purchase choices how can they stimulate the transition to circularity at their workplace when their leadership is unaware yet when the infrastructure is not in place yet but there is passion and there is desire over professional that are part of different companies do you have any advice on how to spark uh, the shift 
I'd have three suggestions or three areas to kind of start um, in terms of trying to gain the attention of people of, of your kind of superiors or senior leadership within your organization. Um, make, I mean, like making the business case is really powerful um, and uh, or highlighting the business macro business opportunity. And as I kind of alluded to earlier, there's a, quite a few pieces of research now that can help you to do that. Showcasing examples, um, examples, stories of examples are a really powerful way of persuading people we find, uh, especially if they're in uh, in your industry or in related industries. And the, and the final thing I think is, you know, look for that kind of small case pilot or opportunity to try it out. Um, you know, like that's that's really the the best way to kind of demonstrate it. And if you're in a organization where circular economy is not embedded in your strategy um and don't underestimate maybe i've, I've said it was only three i'm going to add a fourth one don't un- underestimate the kind of power of the idea um we're actually at the foundation as part of my role we're actively trying to develop a kind of workshop package or a package that people can take and use in their own organizations we call it internally at the moment we call it train the trainer this idea that we can give people a script and a set of resources and a slide deck um, that they can kind of optimize for their own use as well. That can allow them to kind of bring people together in their organization and become, you know, the advocates of the idea because it's a really powerful idea when people do get it and do make time for it. So, uh, so don't give up on kind of telling the story of what the circular economy is as a way of convincing people to get involved. And how can people access this package? And you just mentioned training. Well, I've mentioned it. It's not. Uh, it's not. It's not currently available. It's something that we're working on internally. It will be available in the second half of uh, of twenty twenty, but it will be available on our website, on the foundation's website. But I can let you know when it's available, so you can share it with your listeners as well. Oh yeah, that would be wonderful. <laughs> yes, thank you. And myself, I would be highly interested to learn more. And and the momentum around circular economy gives you kind of even more license to you know to start pioneering the concept or start pushing the idea within your organization it's a good chance your senior leadership are going to be kind of aware of some of the challenges and will be excited by some of the opportunities that you highlight when you talk about the circular economy does the foundation has branches or offices in united states because i know your guys located in uh uk you are being very active in developing it as European Union, um, but in terms of United States, is a huge uh, influencer producer at a huge scale as well. Um, so, is there is a branch? But we do have a an office in the US in New York. With uh, with a, a, I think it's a four or five person team, maybe in in the United States at the moment, maybe less. Um, and it is, it's a you know, as you say, it's a really important market with. Uh, with some quite distinct characteristics from Europe. Um, you know, it, just as one example, Europe imports a huge percentage of its materials and products. And there's a real sense of, um, you know, a lack of space, a real sense of finiteness, I think, in Europe that has driven the kind of agenda around how do we use materials better in Europe. When you go to the United States, there's no such feeling. The United States feels huge. The United States is about, you know, 350 million people. I think the European Union is 420 million people. So it's, you know, it's an equivalent space. Um, and, and so, you know, so the dynamic plays out quite differently. And the narrative, as you've already described, is in a, a different place in terms of 
understanding what the circular economy means. Um, and it's, it's an, an earlier stage in terms of exploring some of the opportunities and how they play out differently in the US. Um, but there are some, you know, there are, we, we've already talked about Google as a, as a, um, as a company example, but there are, I think there are some really interesting aspects to the US in terms of a city level. Um, I know you're interested in fashion, Anastasia. We ran a campaign about this time last year in New York called Where Next, which was a collaboration between the city of New York and a number of the largest brands who have who sell clothes in the US. And it was a big kind of collection drive around collecting old clothing to kind of just understand the circumstances and then to see what the possibilities were with the with the clothing that was collected. Um so so I think I think it's uh, I think there's lots of lots to be further explored for the circular economy in the US. I will be looking forward to uh, growth of that here too, and hopefully to support it as well as much as I can. Um, what are the tools and resources you can direct the listeners towards? So I can also maybe uh, leave a link in the notes to the episode for them to quickly access and begin uh, education of themselves and maybe their colleagues or um, in schools. On the foundation's website, ellamacoverfoundation.org, there's something called the Learning Hub, which provides you with these kind of guided, curated learning experiences through various topics. So there's a, you know, there's an introductory to circular economy one. There's a circular economy in more detail, and then we go into different topics like food and fashion and cities, AI, um, and uh, and those those are those learning experiences have written content and video and audio content. So they just take you through a story around a particular topic um and uh, they look really nice as well so hopefully that's a good reason to check them out so that's the learning hub um and there's things being added to that all the time so it's a good kind of place to bookmark and take note of of the different resources they get added and then there's also the we talked quite a bit about design um if you are a designer the circular design guide which is circulardesignguide.com was uh, we created that in collaboration with the design firm ideo um, about three or four years ago now and it's basically a a guide to the circular economy for a designer and it already starts to introduce it has a number of great resources on it has uh, methods so things that you can start doing already like download packs and workshops and things that you can just deliver as an individual or in groups and it also talks about some of the mindsets or the, some of the thinking that's really powerful to start designing for a circular economy versus a linear economy um, so that's the Circular Design Guide and the Learning Hub, I think, are two great places to uh, to get informed. Wonderful. Thank you. And any closing words of uh, encouragement or uh, summary or anything else we haven't mentioned? There's a couple of things about circular economy that I think are really powerful. Um, it's about designing differently. And I think that's the, the biggest shift that anyone who's listening to this podcast should should try to take on board. This is not about doing less bad this is not about cleaning things up it's not about what do we do with waste it's about designing things differently and once you start thinking about how do you design things differently you'll inevitably start to get immersed in kind of understanding the interconnectedness between lots of different things and to start thinking about systems rather than just individual sort of nodes within value chains or within products so i would definitely say design things differently and start to embrace the world of systems versus um, individual aspects of a system. Extremely inspiring, very knowledgeable. Thank you so much for this interview today.